Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we're going to be doing a disability vocab episode. This one is part two. We already did part one. And if you haven't listened to it or read it yet, be sure to go back and listen to or read it before listening to this one, because we will build off of the last one that we did. Also, as a reminder, we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, arts, and culture. Another podcast in the Dialogue Podcast Network is the Gospel Tangents Podcast. Their latest episode was about revivals in Palmyra in 1820, so... Check that out if you want to dive a little deeper into the context of the Doctrine and Covenants. Nice. So some terms we went over in Disability Vocab Part 1 are ableism, capitalism, nothing about us without us, toxic positivity, examples of ableist language, identity first language versus person first language, the medical model of disability versus the social model of disability, inspiration porn, common stereotypes of disability, visible disabilities versus invisible disabilities, ambulatory wheelchair users, and spoon theory slash spoonies, the definition of that. These are the terms that we're building off of, and we'll kind of just jump in by giving some stats really quick. Okay. According to the CDC, 61 million adults in the U.S. live with a disability. That's about 26% of adults in the United States, about one out of four, that have some type of disability or disabilities. According to the CDC, birth defects, or some people prefer the term congenital disorders rather than birth defects, they affect one in every 33 babies born in the United States each year. The other way that disability happens is through injury. And although stats on this are lacking, According to the World Health Organization, there's estimates for some countries that suggest that up to one-fourth of all disabilities may result from injuries and violence, and that includes like psychological disabilities. Lastly, according to the Social Security Administration, more than one in four of today's 20-year-olds can expect to be out of work for at least a year because of a disabling condition before they reach the normal age of retirement. I laugh. I shouldn't laugh, but I'm like, I don't know. I I never understood why it was so hard for me to hold a job. And I realize now I think it's my neurodivergency just makes it really difficult for me to have a supervisor and to do things the way that they want me to do it instead of the way that makes sense to me. And then the fact that I have to be constantly masking, it just tires me out. And then I, I get really depressed and it affects my mental health. It affects my physical health because my cataplexy. And anyway, yeah, I usually, I usually end up leaving jobs after like, I think the longest I lasted was like nine or 10 months, but average is like four months, six Mm, months Yeah, for like, quote unquote, real jobs. Like with the boss, I much prefer freelancing. And anyway, so it's funny that this statistic applied to me before I even realized it did. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. (laughs) Anyway. So neurodiverse or neurodivergent 
versus neurotypical. So neurotypical or NT for short sometimes means someone who does not experience a neurodivergence. Some neurodivergencies include depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, autism, ADHD and ADD, PTSD, disassociative identity disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder. Woo, that's me. <laughs> Serena just literally raised the roof on <laughs> borderline personality <laughs> disorder. <laughs> Antisocial personality disorder. And then also symptoms that aren't necessarily diagnoses in and of themselves, but that can affect neurodivergent people, delusions, hallucinations, psychoses, panic attacks, anxiety attack. Whew. Anyway, uh, I'm like using those terms to define these terms and we'll get to those, each of those definitions later on. But I just wanted to mention all of those because some people don't realize that all these things are neurodivergencies and we're including we're including you. <laughs> if you have one of those or if you are one of those or identify with one of those, then we're including you. Yay. Okay. Also, allistic means everyone who's not autistic, if that makes sense. So someone could be neurodivergent, but still be allistic. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. More about autism. Okay, some notes from Brooke, whom we interviewed, who is autistic. They say, we don't use functioning labels. There's no such thing as high or low functioning. We all have various support needs that fluctuate. Nothing is static. Human needs change. We don't use terms such as illness, disorder, traits, or condition as these are stigmatizing and further false narratives about our experiences as neurodivergent people and cause harmful medical, social outcomes, and treatment. So this is kind of the current consensus in the autistic community and in, in most other neurodivergent communities right mm -hmm. now. And these are people who are adults, I will emphasize, and we slash they have a right to self-identify and right to choose what language we want to describe ourselves in. So some people who are not autistic but have experience with autistic people may disagree with some of these terms because they haven't been taught that by an autistic person, if that makes sense. So we're here to gently correct. I say gently because I'm trying to act neurotypical right now. <laughs> to gently correct and say, please use the terms that we prefer because we're adults instead of what a random doctor or a social worker told you who is not autistic. Some of them are really well-informed, but others just rely on things in the medical community instead of actually talking to us. Does that make sense? Right, right. And there are some autistic people that might also think otherwise. If you have to differ from this information, do it person yeah. by person if needed. But if you aren't sure, you can rely on this information that this is what the majority of autistic adults have stated they preference. Yes. Okay. Masking refers to when we are hiding our autism, when we're trying to suppress 
our stims and our natural ways of being. And again, this is going off of the notes that Brooke shared with us. Specialization, often called special interests or passions. These are activities or topics that our autistic brains latch onto. Stimming is releasing energy and feelings, usually through movement. This can be chewing on things, dancing, singing, rocking, daydreaming, drawing, tapping your toes, pen spinning, rubbing your hands, biting your lip. Basically, all the natural things you get told not to do as a child. Mm -hmm. All humans stim, but autistic people absorb a massive amount of energy and information from our environment, more so than other people. And for us to process it all, we have to stim. The excess energy is released through movement, and we can regulate our emotions and senses and take in more information. And this personally, I just realized something clicked a couple of weeks ago for me that I stim more when I'm trying to not trigger my cataplexy, if that makes sense. If I can mm. stim more, then I can release that energy before it starts triggering my cataplexy. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> wow. But sometimes, I mean, things are just too overwhelming and then I both need to stim and I have a cataplexy attack. And that leads us into meltdowns and shutdowns. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Back to Brooke's notes. Meltdowns are when we overload and our physical sensations from the environment and our feelings becomes too much and it erupts physically. This is different from panic attacks, but it can kind of look similar. It can include panic attacks, but it isn't necessarily a panic attack. Does that make sense? Hmm. And other autistics, correct me if I'm like phrasing this the wrong way. I'm late diagnosed. And then meltdowns can include crying, screaming, and other outbursts. When we lose physical and mental control of ourselves, we come pouring out and there's nothing to do but leave us alone until we're done. Meltdowns are like seizures. We can't stop them or predict when they occur. It's a medical emergency. Do not come near us during one. I repeat, do not touch us. Do not try to hold us or even be in the same room if possible. Just <laughs> let us be. And these happen. A lot of times, the unfortunate thing is these happen in public environments and automatically in public environments, people will try to contain you or lead you away or someone calls the cops and it can escalate really quickly because we can't control it and people die. Autistic people die on the hands of cops all the time when we're having meltdowns. And also, I do need to mention that it's exponentially more dangerous for a person of color, especially a black person who's autistic, to have a meltdown in public um, just because they don't have that white or light skin privilege to prevent the cops coming right away. You know, mm -hmm. people just assume you're dangerous, you're crazy. And I use that word because that's as an accusation, knowing that I don't like that word, you know, and cops don't hesitate to shoot or people hold you down and yeah and literally people when they're having meltdowns if they're literally constrained physically you can die from that like it's not just yes, correct it's not just violence that comes from the situation escalating it's literally you trying to stop an unstoppable force i guess literally trying to physically contain someone who cannot physically be contained. People can die from that. Yes. 
So we talked about meltdowns, and now let's talk about shutdowns. So shutdowns come with autistic burnout. We've used up all of our internal battery and resources and implode. We can go into catatonic states and lose our skills to read, speak, and function. It often looks like depression, but the cause is different. Internally, it feels as if the world has fragmented pieces of information floating everywhere that your brain can't put together or translate anymore. Burnout can last for a very long time or be short, depending on how quickly your body recovers. And again, those are notes from Brooke's interview. Yeah, this happens a lot to me when I'm working full time. Mm. I feel like that's what happens when I just came home from work and that's what was going on at home, which really sucked because couldn't do anything. Okay. Do you want to talk about the next one? Yeah. On to paralysis. Paralysis can occur from spinal cord injury. Often it's referred to as the acronym SCI or birth defects, or again, some people prefer congenital disorder over birth defects, the phrase. The level of injury affects the amount of paralysis. So the higher up the injury is on your spine, the more disabling it is, like your legs don't work to your bowel and bladder function, to your core strength, to your arm mm -hmm. movement, just depending on where the injury is. Muscle atrophy is a common symptom of paralysis because of lack of use of the muscles, even though the muscles themselves aren't affected with spinal cord injury. They're just affected because of what happens after. Quadriplegic is a person that has impairment on all four limbs, and paraplegic is a person that has impairment on two limbs. Often these people within the community, we call them quads or paras. Another phrase that's tossed around a lot online and on social media, we wanted to mention it because if you go to disability pages, you'll maybe see it here and there, and it can be confusing if you don't know what it is. So the phrase zebras, it's related to the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's considered a rare condition. So those with EDS are also known as medical zebras. Uh, the zebras became the symbol because those with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorder are the unexpected. The phrase that is used by zebras are sometimes when you hear hoof beats, it really is a zebra. <laughs> Meaning doctors will be like, oh, it must be a horse. Like it must be this. It can't mm -hmm. be this mm -hmm. because, you know, this, this disability is so rare, but <laughs> don't discount it. This is uh, information from ellersdanlos.com. When you see a zebra, you know it's a zebra, but no two zebras have identical stripes, just as no two people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or HSD are identical. We have different symptoms, different types, different experiences. We are all working toward a time when a medical professional immediately recognizes someone with this syndrome, reducing the time to diagnosis and improving pathways to care. Do you know if they want that term zebras to only be for HSD and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or if like other rare diseases can use that symbol? That's a good question. So I don't know what people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I don't know if they have a preference, but I have seen that some people use the emoji of a zebra on their social media accounts to say that they do have a rare condition. So it's not okay. always Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but the people that have this syndrome, they're the ones that kind of coined the term zebra and the concept of a zebra. Mm -hmm. So it can be used outside of that, but more commonly it's used for EDS or people with HSD. Okay. 
Yeah. Interesting. I wonder how, how rare is rare for this. Uh, rate. One in 2,500 to one in 5,000 people. I mean, okay. I feel like that's not, to me, I don't think that's very rare because narcolepsy is one in 2,000. And I know like five different people with narcolepsy, not including myself. So hmm. Maybe the rarity is like, because there's like 13 subtypes of EDS, mm. it looks like. Okay. So my understanding from what we read earlier is that everyone with EDS has such different symptoms. It looks like so many different things that it can be really hard to diagnose. So that's what makes it rare, if I'm understanding that correctly. Mm, okay. I mean, there are a lot of barriers to narcolepsy diagnosis. So um, and cataplexy diagnosis. And a lot of times we get misdiagnosed with insomnia and ADHD, sleep apnea or depression. Anyway, hmm. I don't know. That's interesting. People can let us know their opinion on it. If the scope of being a zebra goes outside of the syndrome yes. or not. Yeah. Okay. Should I talk about service animals now? Yeah. So <laughs> Serena has a lot of important information on service animals. Let's jump in. Okay. Let me just say this to start off with. What defines a service animal really depends on the law. And the problem is that there are different laws for different contexts. And I guess it's not a problem. I guess it's good because people have different needs and issues in different places. But yeah, that's why it can be really confusing. And that's why people mix up assistance animals, service animals, and emotional support animals, and psychiatric support animals. And you have all these different terms, which can be really confusing. So the easiest way to remember it is that it goes by the law. So if you can remember the laws, it becomes much more clear. So in public, which is most of the time when people who don't have service animals see service animals, the Americans with Disabilities Act is what defines a service animal there. So this is all about public access and you can either have a dog or a miniature horse, but most of the time people have dogs. Wow. And this dog has to have been trained to work or perform tasks for a person with disability and the task must be directly related to the disability. Let me just address some common misconceptions about this. One, there's no national registry or certification for a service animal in the United States. In other countries, it's different. But there's no such thing as a certified service dog under the ADA in the United States. Wow. Now, in a public institution or like a store or just anywhere where the public goes, they're only allowed to ask two questions. One, is the dog a service animal required because of a disability? Yes or no. And two, what work or task has the dog been trained to perform? That's it. <laughs> That's it. You don't need to give any more answers than that. Staff are not allowed to request any documentation for the dog. They can't even require that the dog demonstrate its task or inquire about the nature of the person's disability, which is really important. And again, this is ADA, public access. Other misconceptions, a service dog doesn't need to wear a harness or a vest. I usually do because... <sighs> 
staff are less likely to ask me questions if I have Raul's vest on him, if that makes sense. Like people are less likely to not believe that he's a service dog. But a special vest or a harness is not required for public access under the ADA. Also, there's no such thing as breed restrictions for service animals under the ADA. Any breed of dog can theoretically be a service animal. And I say this as someone who has strong opinions about different breeds. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just say, I think there is a time and a place for shelter animals. However, as a disabled person looking to train your own service dog because yes you are allowed to train your own service dog you don't need to buy one that's already been trained by an organization shelter dogs can kind of be a crapshoot in terms of behavior and health especially if you're a first-time dog owner and you're disabled so i think it's really important to support sustainable and ethical purebreds because they're much more consistent in their health and temperament. And if they're going to be providing service to you as a disabled person, you need that consistency, you know, like Mm. it's already hard enough to like take care of our own disabilities and be worried about ourselves. And then also to have to be worried about the dog having like aggression in public or having an accident in public just because perhaps they've been mistreated before they were in the shelter or they have a, an inverted vulva, which can happen because of poor breeding and just being spayed at the wrong time. I digress. My point is I strongly recommend if you're going to be training your own service dog to get it from a purebred breeder, not a backyard breeder, a purebred breeder who does all the health tests and pedigree requirements that show that it's a reputable breeder because a lot of people will quote unquote breed dogs in their backyards, but those aren't breeders. Those are people trying to make money. They don't care about the longevity, the health of the dog. You can't return the dog if there's something's wrong with it. Look for a reputable breeder under the AKC, although sometimes that can be a crapshoot too, but still much better chance under the AKC and research that breed, find out what diseases can be inherited by the breed and are really common because the reputable breeders will do tests on these animals before they even breed them. They'll do tests on the mother and the father. Hmm, wow. And if they pass a test and they breed them, if they don't, then they don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what makes a responsible breeder. And if you're buying a puppy from a litter that's already been born, make sure you ask them for proof of all these health tests that they've done. Like be specific. If they say, oh, um, I can't find the paperwork right now, um, but can you pay a deposit? Run away. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> anyway, one more thing about service dogs under ADA and public access is that religious institutions are exempt because those are private property. Hmm. <laughs> so churches at our church buildings in Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's kind of just up to the bishop whether or not to allow the dog into sacrament meeting or into the church building or whatever. But temples are explicitly not allowed to be there. A little bit more leeway in the meeting houses. And this is an access issue, really is. I'm not going to harp on it, but I'm just going to say uh, that's on my list of things to change whenever I become prophet. <laughs> I had to lighten the mood. (laughs) Okay. Now I will talk about emotional support animals. So emotional support animals can be any type of animal. 
And this also relates to public access. However, the public access laws for emotional support animals vary by state. It's not as widespread and like agreed upon as the Americans with Disabilities Act. It can be any type of animal, doesn't need to be trained for a task. A lot of people try to pass off their ESAs in public as service animals. Um, but technically, if they're not trained to perform a task, they're not service dogs. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. However, just because they're not a service dog doesn't mean that they're not necessary. Because yeah. I have friends who have different ESA animals for different purposes, you know, one for depression and one for anxiety. It's like, it's literally like taking medication, not like taking medication. You're not eating your dog or your cat, but, but literally the different animals and with different personalities can perform different functions. Some people might have an ESA goldfish, you know, if you get to the point where the ESA is actively comforting you when you're in distress, that could be termed as a psychiatric support animal. Does that make sense? In which case it leans more towards service animal than ESA. This is why it's kind of confusing. Now I'm going to talk about the Fair Housing Act with these animals because this is where the ESA law, I wish I could say set in stone. It's written down, but it's not set in stone because landlords get away with crap all the time about ESAs. Now, under the Fair Housing Act, yes, ESAs can be any type of animal. They don't need to be trained for a task. However, under the Fair Housing Act, you do need a letter from a medical doctor or a therapist in order to have this apply to you. Basically, like I said, a living prescription. This allows you to have your animal in housing that otherwise state no pets because technically it's not a pet it's a prescription Mm. and also breed restrictions do not apply under the fair housing act also they're not allowed to charge you extra fees for having it because some people will say yeah we allow pets but you have to pay an extra 50 dollars a month well that's illegal under the fair housing act also under the fair housing act landlords are required to make reasonable accommodations i put that in quotes for people with assistance animals. And by assistance animals, I mean both emotional support animals and service dogs because the Fair Housing Act doesn't really make a distinction. Hmm. With Raul, even though he's trained to help me with my cataplexy, I still theoretically need to have a letter from a doctor because it's assistance animal. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And someone correct me if the laws have updated, but they can't turn someone away just because you have an assistance animal. This is theoretically enforced by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, but it is poorly enforced slash poorly funded, poorly planned. I don't know exactly what the problem is, but it sucks. And I've had a lot of problems with it. There are huge gaps and loopholes in this law, such as rental dwellings of four units or less where one is occupied by the owner, they can choose to turn you away. Single family homes that are sold or rented by the owner, they can choose to turn you away. Housing owned by Private clubs slash religious organizations that restrict occupancy to their members can choose to turn you away. Do any of those sound familiar to you? <laughs> uh, like BYU housing or? Yes. Oh. Yeah. This is a huge problem I found around church schools because, yes, if it's just contracted by the school, then technically it's not owned by the school, in which case the Fair Housing Act does apply. So it's easier if you're not in campus housing itself, if that makes sense. Hmm. And even people who own larger complexes 
still discriminate. And it's just like, yeah, you can make a report. I've made reports, but each time it's like its own prosecution. You know, each time they want all the evidence, you have to like write a witness statement and everything. So it's basically Mm. trying to like sue them every single time you get turned away. And sometimes you get turned away like five, 10, 20 times before you find a place that lets you live there. And this happened to me in Utah. This happened to me in Los Angeles. Anyway, so yeah, lots of loopholes there. Really quick misidentifying service animals and assistance animals and ESAs and people passing it off. My personal opinion is that if we start questioning other people and whether or not their service animal and assistance animal is valid, then we are giving into the same mindset that discriminates against people who have invisible disabilities and neurodivergencies that require assistance animals. So I personally try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I totally agree. Yeah. You got to understand that it affects all disabled people when you start questioning people on their ESAs or service animals and like we already have to prove ourselves in a lot of different circumstances Mm -hmm. so it's not it's not worth it i have family members who have service dogs and sometimes legitimate service dogs can be minding their own business and trying to work for their human and these other animals that are not trained and belong to these able-bodied people who are taking advantage of the system will snap at them and will traumatize the service animal in so much that they can't work anymore. Mm -hmm. So this is where tension is. And I wanted to make sure I said that. Yeah. But this is actually kind of controversial, even within like the service dog community, because a lot of able-bodied people and neurotypical people just want to save money or just like, I don't know, they're just entitled. Okay. Like they try to get away with these things and then the laws get a lot stricter and stricter. And then it becomes even harder and harder for people like us to prove that we really do medically need this animal. And that's what happened with the air carrier access act. The airlines blamed it on these people who were faking having ESAs. And now an ESA uh, is just a pet on the airplane. That's why I said the laws vary depending on your circumstance. Now my friend can't travel with their animals on an airplane without spending an extra couple hundred dollars, which is ridiculous. Like they don't charge you extra money for your bottle of antidepressants. One thing I do want to say about this last thing, (laughs) I promise. (laughs) If your animal is not correctly trained or socialized, then it's not ready to be an assistance animal, or at least not in public. If your animal is being aggressive or overly fearful in public towards other animals, then even if you have a medical exemption, like it's not doing you much good at that point. So I I recommend not bringing it into public. And that's why I say, don't go shelter, go purebred. And make sure you train your animal. This is why I don't know. Anyone who really needs an animal like this usually, from what I've seen, is pretty freaking dedicated to the training of that animal because we know that we need it and we don't want our medication slash accommodation to fail us when we need it the most. Most of us spend hours training our animal each week. You know, we we do lots of research before we buy. Like this is like really important to us. I should stop talking about that because I went on a super, super, super long tangent. Well, since you mentioned the Fair Housing Act, do you want to share a little bit about the Americans with Disabilities Act? You mentioned it, but you didn't really say what it is. 
Yeah. So the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, was passed in 1990. It's a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including jobs, schools, transportation, and all public and private places that are open to the general public, except, like I said, religious places. (laughs) The purpose of the law is to make sure that people with disabilities have the same rights and opportunities as everyone else. The ADA gives civil rights protections to individuals with disabilities similar to those provided to individuals on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, age, and religion. It guarantees equal opportunity for individuals with disabilities in public accommodations, employment, transportation, state and local government services, and telecommunications. The ADA is divided into five titles or sections that relate to different areas of public life. And there have been several updates since then regarding the definition of disability, etc., The ADA and the FHA do not apply to airline transportation. It's a bit of a convoluted history, but basically it's a different law because the airlines are private entities. They have mandatory accessibility under Air Carrier Access Act, such as kiosks and chairs and things like that. They're supposed to allow assistance animals, but there are a lot more stringent requirements now. If you have a service dog, I really highly recommend doing the Good Canine Citizen certification, which is, like I said, it's not a national certification, but it is with a national entity in the United States. It's with the American Kennel Club, the AKC, which is like the biggest dog show. They institute this test to show that your dog can behave itself in public spaces. If you can provide that, then sometimes it it makes it easier to get access on the airlines, especially if you're traveling internationally. Yeah. Okay. So some other common mental health or mental illnesses or other neurodivergencies that we wanted to define for people who are unaware. Depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain complicated by genetics and environment. Anxiety is repeating feelings of fear and worry. Obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. It's having the urge to do something sometimes or often because of a trigger, and you can only make the urge go away by doing something. ADHD and ADD is attention difficulty, hyperactivity, and impulsiveness. PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. It's environmentally caused and triggered, and it can be it can result in panic attacks or executive dysfunctions and it can also bring about flashbacks and then i wanted to go a little bit more into this one because mm-hmm. there seems to be a lot of confusion between the difference between schizophrenia and did dissociative identity disorder so there's a popular misconception that people with schizophrenia switch from personality to personality each with its own name thoughts and voices That's not the case, however. People who believe that are confusing schizophrenia with dissociative identity disorder, formerly called multiple personality disorder. Schizophrenic people can experience delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, disorganized or catatonic behavior, memory problems, or have different emotional reactions to things that people without schizophrenia would have or expect. As far as dissociative disorders, there are three types. There's depersonalization slash derealization disorder, dissociative amnesia, and dissociative identity disorder. Symptoms of dissociative disorders may include feeling detached from your actions, like you're watching a movie, feeling like some people or things aren't real, trouble remembering information about themselves or having memory gaps, 
and alternating between two or more distinct personality states or experiences. And also we wanted to say experiencing schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder or other disorders does not mean that a person is dangerous or can't live independently. This is a really common, really harmful stereotype that's continually enforced by culture and media, and it needs to stop. Yeah, this is personal to me because there's someone that I care about who self-identifies as having one of these. But yeah, this is a very general overview. Please don't use us as a self-diagnosis. I think most people on their self-diagnosis journey, I do think it's valid. However, I think most of us do lots and lots of research and I encourage everybody to use the resources that you have on hand, whether that's the internet or podcasts or books to research this. But the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's a book by the American Psychiatric Association. Basically, it's what doctors use to diagnose people with these things. It's being continually updated, and there is continual research on this. And there are different types and like numbers of disassociative disorders, if that makes sense. And I don't know all the differences, but I just wanted to make sure people know that this is based off of the DSM. And also, people exist independently of the DSM. Like, the DSM has everything in it. Like, everything from depression to autism to DID, right? Like, <laughs> and the, this is scientists, most of whom um, most of whom are neurotypical because uh, it's super hard to get credentials and get people to believe you if you're neurodivergent, right? Because there's so many access barriers in the way. So, like... Sometimes our experiences might not exactly match up to what's in the DSM, but that doesn't mean that we can't use these frameworks to help understand ourselves and to progress in our identities and health. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was well said. Thank you. I was trying really hard. Also, ADHD, I've heard from some people in the ADHD and ADD community that it's kind of really oversimplified by its name and there's a lot more symptoms and it's its own like neurotype, kind of like autism is its own neurotype. So is ADHD, ADD. There's much more to it than just attention difficulty, hyperactivity, and impulsiveness. Also, scrupulosity is a type of OCD relating to religious experience and religious beliefs and worthiness. And I want to say also with that, don't use that word in describing people as adjectives. Like, oh, that person has a lot of scrupulosity unless they've told you like, I am this, right? It's often overlooked. And I just wanted to make sure we said that. Cool. Thank you. Do you want to go more into the next section? Okay. So there are personality disorders, I put that in quotes, in the DSM. Some of them you've probably heard of, bipolar slash manic depression. This is having severe highs and lows, but these periods of highs and lows can last days or weeks or months on end. Basically, this is very oversimplified. Again, uh, mania are the highs that bipolar people experience where they have lots of energy. And like I said, this can last for a very long time. And then depression is their lows where they have little to no energy. Okay. I feel bad because I I feel like there's so many like caveats and details I want to include, but I'm trying to go quick. Yeah, this is very simplified explanations. Yes. And if you have information you want to share with us that we left out, please message us because we'd love to share that as well. 
Or I want to do an interview with you. I want more interviews with people with quote-unquote disorders because I love us. Also, borderline personality disorder. That's me. So this is characterized in the DSM by like nine different symptoms. I won't go into all of that. But really common among borderlines are mood swings, intense fear of abandonment, a lack of impulse control, having a like favorite person that kind of our emotion center around. I don't know how to explain that. Lots of social triggers. People think that borderline personality disorder is kind of like having third degree burns on your like emotional body. And it's a kind of form of PTSD. Kind of like if you touch your skin after it's been burnt, it's really sensitive, right? Same kind of thing with borderline. We're really sensitive because lots of us have had traumatic things happen to us. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to say about this is a lot of autistic AFAB, assigned female at birth people, are misdiagnosed with borderline personality disorder. This is a little of a hot topic in both of those communities. So I'm just going to say I think it's entirely plausible and I personally identify as having both. I see them in my life in different ways. But actually, when Brooke told me in one of our past episodes that a lot of autistic AFAB are misdiagnosed as borderline, that actually is what put me on my journey to autism diagnosis. So that can be helpful, but also don't rule out one or the other just because you have one, if that makes sense. Hmm. Personally, to me, they're very distinct because I have both and they explain different things about myself that can't be explained by the other. Hmm. Another really, I'm just going to say this really quickly. Slitting is when we get into like really black and white thinking. Some people would say we're not thinking rationally. Like we can go from love to hate really quickly or like all or nothing sort of mindset. Certain triggers will cause me to split, usually around the people that I care about the most, if that makes sense. If there's conflict in that arena or a fear of abandonment, then I can split really easily. But that's different from a meltdown or a shutdown. Because I've also experienced those because of my autism. But that feels very different. Moving on from borderline, antisocial personality disorder. This is the new name for what people like to call sociopathy or psychopathy. Some people just want to be called sociopaths, but from what I understand, the community at large would rather distance themselves from that term just because it's so demonized in the media. Mm. And this is characterized by, well, I'm going to say this, but I, I don't really... I want to find a better way to say this, but characterized by disregard for other people, I think accusations of narcissism are really harmful. And we talked about this a little bit in the last episode about my quote from Tobin Sieber's book. I don't know how to describe antisocial personality disorder without demonizing it. I need to educate myself more on how they self-identify and how they like to express themselves. But they are still human. And some people like to throw these accusations of sociopathy and psychopathy when something terrible happens. And we find that really ableist to call someone crazy or a psychopath or a sociopath just because they did a terrible thing. Yeah. Or when people just disagree with you. Ugh. We find that really ableist and gaslighty and terrible. And if anyone calls you those things uh run away flee flee (laughs) (laughs) um also 
actually most people with antisocial personality disorder live very normal lives and blend in like they're so different, but they're humans, like they're normal. Like you probably have friends who have antisocial personality disorder and they either haven't told you or maybe they don't know it. Yeah. Okay. So yes. delusions versus hallucinations versus psychosis. All of these are different things. Obviously they can overlap with a person's experience, but delusions mm -hmm. are false beliefs. Hallucinations are seeing things that aren't there or aren't fully there. And then psychosis is a disruption to a person's thoughts and perceptions that makes it difficult for them to recognize what is real and what isn't. Like Serena mentioned a little bit earlier, panic attacks and anxiety attacks are different. They can be experienced at the same time or not. There is some overlap, but technically they are different things. Panic attacks are unexpected and sudden. They are caused commonly by external stressors. They have more physical symptoms. They're often confused with heart attacks. And then some people with panic attacks feel like they're dying. Really, they share so many symptoms. So that's kind of the biggest difference from what I understand. If you're like scared that you're going to die, it's probably a panic attack. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. And then apprehension, worry, distress, and fear can often come before an anxiety attack. And then those emotions build up, overflow, and then that's the result. Yes. So executive processes are integral to higher brain function, particularly in the areas of goal formation, planning, goal-directed action, self-monitoring, attention, response inhibition, and coordination of complex cognition and motor control for effective performance. Basically, like your little task manager inside your head, right? <laughs> Saying, do this now do this later. Let's do this first. We can do it. When you're having executive dysfunction, this isn't working correctly. And you can have disruptions in task-oriented behavior, which require executive control in the inhibition of habitual responses and goal activation. So basically, you need more control in order to do things that are not repetitive or like in your routine. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. That requires more executive energy. So if that's interrupted, it can be harder to do those things. And executive dysfunction can be a symptom of many different disabilities or neurodivergencies. Yeah. The last thing we wanted to share, this isn't really vocab. This is just advice for people. Yeah. How can you support disabled people? This is a question we get here and there. So we wanted to share a couple ideas. You can speak up about accessibility issues wherever you see them. Whether the accessibility issue that you see would affect you or not, point it out because you want to make all the spaces that you interact with accessible to everyone. And then also with that, make sure your online content, your social media or other spaces are accessible. Take personal responsibility over this and don't just call out other people when you see problems. <laughs> Uh, you can also follow disability activists on social media. There's so many awesome pages that share really good information about what it's like being disabled and the lives that we live, information like that. And interact with them because I know on TikTok, their algorithm is so sensitive that if you don't interact with the content and you just follow someone, their reach goes down. So don't just mm. follow just because we told you to. Follow because you find their content interesting and you're learning something from it and interact with it. Like, comment, share, 
Agree. Also, hire disabled people. Yeah. <laughs> hire us. We can do a lot more than people assume that we can do. And just talk to us about the accommodations we need. And then lastly, don't force disabled people to give emotional labor. This is not totally agreed upon by all disabled people, but it's a good thing to understand. It's important to do your own work, like Google things, read, learn, lift the voices of disabled people, and be respectful and allow privacy. If you're curious about someone with a disability or neurodivergency and you want to ask them some questions, here's some things you should ask yourself first before you approach a person. Is this something I really need to know? Will I interrupt this person's day? Am I asking this question for myself or for them? How well do I know this person? And what is my goal in asking this question? I feel like if people ask those questions in their head, there would be a lot less stress for disabled people and yeah. neurodiverse people to just exist in public because we're approached and othered all the time in public. And for me personally, and I know for some other disabled people, there's some days where you're like, hmm. I know I'm going to face this if I go out. So I don't really want to go out today because I'm not, I don't want to do that. And yeah. that sucks. <laughs> it sucks yeah. a lot. Well, we did it. <laughs> That's our little list, everybody. Again, if we missed anything, please, please, please DM us on Instagram or you can email us holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com if you think of something that we should have included in our basic disability vocab. Again, we know we didn't dive deep into everything, but we just wanted to share the basics of what you should know if you're wanting to be a disability ally or if you're interested in learning more about the disability community, whether you're disabled, neurodiverse, or neurotypical or able-bodied. If you identify as any of the things we mentioned in this episode, please reach out to us. We would love to have an interview be with you and learn from you and pass your perspective on to our audience and just find out your feelings about your identity, especially how it intersects with faith and religion and Christianity and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please donate to our Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. <laughs> and follow us on Instagram. We have lots of good discussions on Instagram. Please interact with us on Instagram at holyhuman. And our email, if you would like to be involved, is holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Thank you, as always, for supporting us and for participating in our content. We will interact with you next week. Yay!